When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I am Sebastian Teotrio. I'm Alex Hollingsworth. Welcome to The Hidden Curriculum, a podcast where we talk about all the stuff you didn't learn in graduate school. Welcome, everyone. Alex, how are you doing today? Doing very well. Sort of excited that the semester is off and running. What about yourself, Sebastian? Oh, it is scary that the semester has started. I mean, excited. <laughs> um, I'm doing well, too. I, uh, yeah, no, things are... are um, I'm finally meeting my deadlines that have just come up. And so I'm feeling like I'm achieving things and moving things along, um, which is very exciting. Great. So uh, for today's topic, we were going to talk about of handling multiple projects, which I feel like it's going to be a really cool, interesting topic. I was very uh, interested in, in learning how other people uh, or what other people have said about this topic. So I was reading a lot this week. And we'll share tips that Alex and I have learned over the years. The topic was submitted by our guest today, which is Melissa Spencer. Melissa is a PhD student in the economics department at UVA. She's also in the job market this year, so check her out. Melissa's research focuses on well-being of women and minorities across the areas of reproductive health, infectious diseases, and domestic violence. So all very hot topics. She's also the founder of the Women's in Economics programs at UVA. Very impressive. And she was, or she's part of the Graduate Student Council uh, she's a very involved citizen. Melissa, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for inviting me to join today. Well, we're glad to have you. So as we ask all of our guests, can you tell us some fun fact about yourself? Yeah, so one ho- one of my hobbies when I'm not being a grad student is singing. And during non-COVID times, I sing in choir at church and with the MLK Community Choir in Charlottesville. And for a while, I was actually in an acapella group oh. at UVA that was completely made up of science and engineering PhD <laughs> students. So I arranged some songs for the group and even did a little beatboxing. That's amazing. That's super cool. Um, Were the topics of your songs like reflective of your respective fields or did you keep <laughs> like classic? Not really. I wanted to do weird science one semester, but that got voted down. So we all just put in songs that we wanted to sing and we voted and it was pop songs, Disney songs, just anything we felt like doing. And are you still in the group singing or no? Not anymore. Singing's kind of a not great with COVID. Um, Yeah, that's fair. Definitely looking forward to singing into coming back. Yeah, Zoom singing is hard, but you I wish I I wish I knew this so I could have asked you to to bring a little bit of a of a you know a snippet of a song for us you know. <laughs> have you Melissa? Have you seen those popcorn TikTok things? Do you know what I'm talking about? Where like one person starts singing and they ask another person to harmonize and they do like the side by side. Yeah, so it's like where I would sing like Al, and then you would say like X, and like so it's like literally like they break it up on syllables and then they stitch them together on TikTok. Oh. It's pretty cool. It's worth checking oh, out. Oh, I haven't it's seen nice, that. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Good way to waste Wait, some Alex, time. does this mean you have TikTok? I, I do have TikTok. <gasps> I need uh, Chinese know my location. You know, yeah, Chinese know your location. That's fair. I don't have TikTok on my phone, but my partner does. So I get I'll get the curated TikTok TikTok videos, which I think I appreciate that. Yeah, I actually downloaded it to watch. There's some uh, there's some cool content that people are pushing out there. 
uh, related to like scientific communication. And then it quickly divulged into like me watching people like jump through hoops of fire. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. All right, Melissa. Um, so let's talk a little bit about your research. You're in the market this year. So I'm guessing you're working on your pitch for your job market paper. Do you want to share that with us? Absolutely. So as you mentioned, my research studies policies that affect the health, safety, and well-being of women and minorities. In my job market paper, I focus specifically on women's health and study how women approach risks associated with consensual sexual activity. For example, when women engage in sexual activity, they face two main risks, sexually transmitted infection, STI, and pregnancy. But we don't really know how women deal with these joint risks when making decisions about sexual behavior and contraception. I study the relationship between STI protection and pregnancy prevention, specifically asking, do STI avoidance behaviors affect birth rates? I answer this question by looking at the spread of AIDS across U.S. cities in the 1980s and 1990s. And I find that birth rates actually increase in response to local AIDS incidents which might initially seem surprising if we take this viewpoint that the AIDS epidemic should have encouraged people to practice safe sex, then maybe we think that birth rate should have gone down. But in my paper, I show that women, specifically white unmarried women, responded to AIDS risk by choosing to have sex with only one man, and with only one partner, contraceptive use might be less consistent, or maybe sex is more frequent, or maybe pregnancy just becomes more desirable. And as a result, the birth rate increases. That's that's really interesting, Melissa. Uh, I'm curious then, so I've been doing just a little bit of work on PrEP recently. And do you have any expectations about how PrEP would affect? So those for those that aren't know, PrEP is basically a daily uh, pill that you can take that reduces the likelihood of contracting HIV conditional on exposure. Do you have any uh, expectations of how that might affect these same things? Yeah, I mean, I think PrEP is such an important innovation because basically what we get is we're adding one more option to the choice set of things that you can do to avoid AIDS. And, you know, specifically in my setting where I'm seeing that women are adjusting their number of sexual partners to avoid AIDS, it could be that PrEP is an alternative. You know, you can stick with your current sexual behavior, but start using PrEP. But, you know, there's also important issues with PrEP in terms of access and everything. And that's something that we have to consider when thinking like- (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Sebastian has a paper on that. So that's something we have to think about when we say, oh, well, now people just have PrEP. A lot of people won't. And so, okay, let me let me try to see if I can summarize what you just said to us. So you're looking at the ACE epidemic. And as as that is growing, women are having to face that risk and saying like, well, maybe I want to change my sexual behaviors because of the risk of the HIV epidemic. And then you're trying to look at how those how that changes in sexual behavior affects birth rates, which it does positively. Is that, is that fair to say? Yes, that's correct. Um, is that is that a, something surprising, do you think, from the literature or unsurprising? What's your flavor for that? I mean, I think it's surprising just in terms of, you know, there's typically this like one idea that safe sex is sex with a condom and we expect, you know, the AIDS epidemic happens, people are going to start using condoms and more contraception. So birth Mm -hmm. rates will go down. Mm -hmm. And actually, there's just a lot of different ways that women can respond to the risk of STI. And I show that one of these surprising ways can result in an increase in the birth rate. And uh, Melissa, let me ask you about this Women in Economics program that you started at UVA. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? And why did you start it? And what did they do? 
Yeah, so a few years ago, Women in Economics at Berkeley actually hosted a diversity and economics summit for grad students. And I went and got the opportunity to meet a ton of other women grad students in economics. And while I was there, I learned that a lot of universities had these women in econ programs. Hmm. And I was like, that's awesome. We need that. <laughs> yeah. um, so I came back and came back to UVA, talked with the department chair, the DGS started telling them about this. And uh, they were really excited. So I put together a funding proposal, um, sent it to the department chair. We sent it to the diversity office at UVA and also got uh, sent a portion of it to CSWIP and we got funding from all three of these sources. That's amazing. Fund our first semester. Yeah. That's great. So what type of activities or outreach do you do on campus or more broadly? So we just started um, last year. Last year was kind of a pilot year. We started just focusing on grad students um, and we had some social activities. Uh, we had uh, faculty roundtables. This was actually our most popular event where we'd invite a woman faculty member to come and uh, talk about her path in economics. That's and the awesome. grad students would come and hang out and just ask her questions. Mm -hmm. uh, we had some joint events with other departments. So we did a uh, Galentine's Day with the Society <laughs> of Women Engineers and Women in Medical oh, Science. Cool. Um, and so, yeah, just a bunch of different things to kind of help women grad students at UVA and economics feel more included and also um, like they're getting the support they need so that they'll stay in the profession. And you, so you did this all while being in your third or fourth year? This is... Let's see. I Okay, so I started thinking about it in my fourth year, um, okay. started working on the funding proposal, got the funding together so that everything started in my fifth year. That's awesome. Um, and if other people maybe want to start this initiative in their own schools, any recommendations, just go for it. Or like, the, is, is the time uh, commitment a lot? What, what could you say to that um, for those people? Yeah, I would say the time commitment can be a lot. I think it's important to find faculty and other grad students who are also interested so that, that you can all work together. And also so that when you eventually graduate, there's people who are invested and will continue the program. Um, I know that Women in Economics at Berkeley has a bunch of uh, resources on their website for trying to start an organization at your own school, mm -hmm. uh, which I found helpful. I'd also, of course, be happy to share the documents I put together. If anyone's interested, they can reach out to me. Great. What a great resource. I'm sure people at CSWEP will uh, appreciate that as well. Okay, so let's get started with our uh, topic of the day. Uh, could you tell us then, Melissa, about uh, what you contacted us, what, what you wanted to talk about today? Yeah, so I really want to know more about skills for managing multiple projects. You know, for most of grad school, you're just focusing on your job market paper. So it's not really a, feel, a skill that I feel like I've learned yet. And now that I'm starting to have multiple projects going on at once, it's a challenge. Yeah. So, yeah, how do you know which projects to prioritize? How do you uh, minimize switching costs when moving between projects? And just what is your general advice to adapting to having multiple projects at once? I think if someone knew the secret answer to this, they would just immediately win all the MacArthur and Nobel Prizes. Right. I was about to, uh, my answer was going to be like, we don't know. Thank you for coming to the podcast. Oh man, I shouldn't have said anything. That would have been much better. No, no, that's fair. Um, yeah. So I think Alex and I both have like a set of tips and, and Melissa, you're welcome to like bring your own tips, but just, just so we can get some context, how many projects are you now balancing? About four right now. About four. And, and, and are you shifting away from, 
solely working on your job market paper to start working on those or you're solely right now focused on working on your job market paper? Um, well, you know, a lot of my time's on the job market paper right now, but I try to take a week where I'm just focused on that. And then another week where I'm bouncing mm. between the other three. And, and I don't and know I'm, if that's a good way to do that. What stage? I, I mean, I, like, I don't need to get totally into your workflow. So sorry, but like what stage are the various projects in? So, you know, job market paper, obviously getting close to time. So working draft, writing and everything. Uh, the other ones are in the data analysis, um, maybe starting to write, but pretty early. Okay. So fairly early on. Yeah. I'll start a conversation by saying, by saying one general thing, which is, I think whatever of the following advice or tips are you going to hear, you know, I think of them as things that maybe help you be more organized or, or notice some processes, but none of these things is going to you know, make the quality of your research improve. And so I was thinking about the kitchen analogy that that we refer back to a couple of, of weeks ago. And and I think of like, these are the things that maybe help your kitchen be clean and organized and managing different things, but doesn't actually help you on the skill of being a good chef and <laughs> and working on, on quality of the papers, let's say. But I think it, it helps. I think it's like, I, it could help uh, for sure on that. Um, and then I think the second thing when I was talking about this topic with other people is that I do see a variety of of different personalities in how they handle shift. Like I think there's some people who are really good at from one hour to another shifting from project to project and they do that and they seem to do that well uh, versus other kinds of people where, uh, and that's a little bit more in my bucket, where I kind of need more time to concentrate on a given single project. And so maybe I'll spend a day or at least most of the day in one project or maybe in a week and then shift gears. Yeah. And you can extend that thought to not just project specific differences, but also like type of thing. Like even if you're working on one project, if you're like, Oh, I'm going to write for a week straight, you might not be able to write for a week straight. Right. So um, just like shifting the type of work you're doing across time and space can be important too. Yeah. Um, so I'll start with like maybe a tip, tip number one that I think is maybe obvious. Like this is, I think organization helps when you're handling a lot of projects. I think organization is going to be like a very key thing to do. And I think organization looks different for different people. I'll just share my experience. I like to have a visual way of looking at my projects. Some people do this on the whiteboard. I use this software called Notion where I have uh, six stages of a project, like looking for data, primary analysis, writing a draft, submitted it, R&R, you know, and then last stage is published. And, and I kind of like move around the projects of where they are. And then within that, I have notes about what to do next. So I, I always like to, I, that's kind of like where I start when I'm like, okay, this is like a visual representation of the stages of, of where I have things um, and that yeah, helps. Do you look at that like every day or like how often do you like interact and like touch that sort of yeah. piece of information? That's a good question. So I, I do look at it every day because I need to go into the project that I'm working there. But um, this is related to my, to another tip that I have, but I do uh, what I call a weekly review, but I actually do it every two weeks or something like that, or every month where I review the stage of all my projects. Like I could pick a day, whether that's bi-weekly or monthly. And I, and I check, okay, what is the stage of this? What is the stage of that? And usually it, it tends to be sometimes a, a quick process, but sometimes I'm like, oh my gosh, I really have not thought about advancing this project in a while. And where's, you know, is there an email or something I can do to move it forward? Yeah, that's interesting. So I, I find that I have, I'm not as disciplined as you where I'm not like <laughs> always looking at the stages of all my projects. So I actually, you can, you guys can maybe see it. It's behind me. Oh yeah. Um, and it's a cork board. And I did this sort of the same thing with, as you did, where I have like different oh, yeah. stages for each project, but then each project is like a cutout note card. 
And mm. that way, just like every time I sit down at my desk, I can see like, what are the various stages of which projects and also how many projects do I have yeah. going on? So yeah. I can feel like self permission to say no to stuff. And, and it, do you just have the title of the project or you have something else in the note cards? So I have the title and then underneath the date that I submitted it to where, and then obviously lots of scratches out as they get rejected. <laughs> and then um, uh, a little tag on like a, like a, like a count of how many hours I've spent on the project. And then on the two that I'm focusing on, like a freaking post-it mm. note arrow gotcha. thing. Gotcha, gotcha. What do you guys think is the right number of projects to have going on at once? Is there a 25. magic number? 25 is the answer. Oh, no, 42. <laughs> 42 is the answer, right? 42 you give people a heart attack. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, I mean, I feel like the answer is like there is no true answer. Um, and it's a, it's a function of resources too. Like maybe some people can manage a ton of projects because they have RAs and a whole team and whatever. So I, I'll, I'll, I'll try to answer that question. I'll try to give you a number. I feel like I can manage, I've been able to manage up to six-ish projects, all different stages. So I'm not touching all of them at the same time, but it's taken me a while to do that, but I'm better between three and four. That's, that's, those are my numbers that I personally feel comfortable and those are like things where you are like whatever, if there's three authors, you're one third of the work or more, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. you're yeah. full in projects. I only have, yeah, I only have one paper where, right, where it's, I'm the single author. There's a lot of like t- team effort in all of those projects. So like, I don't know, Melissa, for right now, if like all your projects, your dissertations, they're all solo authored, but like four that solo authored is a different number than yeah, that's eight so true. co-authored. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, I have a few that are with co-authors, and I think that adds an additional level of difficulty in figuring out what to prioritize and how to manage your time between it when your co-authors have expectations about what you're working on. Are your co-authors all like like in higher academic years, let's say? I have um, two that are faculty, and then I actually have one that's a former undergrad, and we're writing a paper together, oh, like a former undergrad student, and uh, now we're working together. I did a really bad job when I first transitioned from being a grad student yeah. to being a faculty member, managing the number of projects. Mm-hmm. I didn't even have a good idea how many I was working on at one point, because like, it's not like someone sends you a contract, like, do you want to do this, yes or no? Yeah. Like Somehow I clicked the yes box over like lunches or whatever, and until I made this board and visualized it and started thinking about it, it, it was, uh, it was very stressful for a while. Yeah. yeah. And then I actually have a question for both of you guys. So how do you, let's say you're working on four or six or 42, whatever the number is, how do you pick what to do with yeah. a given hour that you have with the week, with the timeline? Like, how do you, Alec, how do you map what you have to do to your calendar? Um, well, I usually start with like impending deadlines yeah. and <laughs> <laughs> prioritize that. Um, and then I think it's a trade-off because like of what I want to really be working on versus maybe I have stuff sitting in my inbox mm. asking me questions about a specific project. And I actually don't know what the right way is to pick between those two methods. Yeah, I think that was hard for me too when I was starting to get more projects because I transitioned from like solely working on my job market paper to like, here's three or four projects that I said yes to that I needed to work on. And I think, I mean, you said deadlines and maybe you said it jokingly, but I actually wrote that down as like, no, that actually helps a lot. Like I, I make sure um, on these review days to be like, okay, what is the next deadline that I have for a given project? And for deadline, I don't mean like, uh, you know, conference or any more hard deadline. I mean, also like, oh, I told this person, one of my co-authors, that I was going to send them results by next week. And so... I don't know if this is another tip, but but if you're working with our set of people, I usually try to tell them like, 
I will give you something by X date. Because if I don't do that, then I'm like very wishy-washy about when I'm going to do it. That, that enforcing a deadline helps me being like, okay, I have to do this by this. Yeah. And I think you're like, so it's like a Kanban board is another name for the type of thing Sebastian was saying how he organized his stuff. Mm-hmm. So you can like move one card from like revising to submit it or whatever yeah. stages you have. But I think one of the values of having that Kanban board is it enables you to make like slightly more accurate predictions of your deadlines. So before I had this like visual whatever representation of the stages of all my different projects, I was like regularly saying, Oh, I'll do this by next week. Really thinking I could do it. Mm -hmm. And then forgetting about other stuff or like not, I like wasn't following through on commitments I was making, but like totally unintentionally. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was really, really stressful. So I think that's one of the values of having like, however it is you do it, but like keeping an eye on where everything is and how much time you're spending on it and what are like the next action steps you need to like successfully get that thing out the door. Yeah, it sounds like this visual representation need to like successfully get that thing out the door. Yeah, it sounds like this visual representation of your projects is really important. I think I think it is. You know, it's kind of weird because it feels so so maybe simple, but <laughs> I think it's just helpful um uh just to to see where things are along and what you want to push along more. Um g- granted, I I do have to say that for example, once I get to once I have an R&R somewhere, I think this to to answer kind of your question, Alex, I try to move all my efforts to push that as much as I can until I get like at a place that I'm saturated with that and I'll take a pause and work somewhere else or uh, or I can give it to a co-author. So I think that's the only time where I'm like, I want to get this out as soon as possible. And if I get tired of it, then I'll pause and then I'll work on something else. Yeah, what's nice about an R&R is for the most part, um, it's a list of things to do, right? You might need to like figure yeah. out how to turn it into a to-do list, but it's like, oh, if I do these five things, I will maximize my chance for success. Mm-hmm. But like when it's just a working paper, particularly one you've yet to submit, it's like the potential to-do list is infinite, right? So it's, that's so, also different. So that's, that's a good point. I think my thought there, what I've done somewhat successfully, but not super successfully is I, I tell myself that I want to submit a draft to a set of peers and then my peers, you know, or, you know, people that I trust, whatever. And then from that round, and I tell them a deadline, like, can you give me comments by this time? And usually it works. And then I have like this to-do list of like, okay, these are the things that I need to get done before submission. And I, and I asked them that question directly. It's like, read this paper and tell me what things you would do before submission. And if it were your paper and, and then I get some comments and then I have that, that to-do list. Yeah. That's, that's a really good idea. I don't know if, is that something you learned from a mentor or is that just something you picked up along the way? I, I, if, if, if any of my mentors told me this, I am sorry that I (laughs) (laughs) forgot. I want to say I picked it along the way, but um, I think it was just, it was more because I was getting to this. I think what I, a mistake that I made early on in my career was that I never knew where to stop a paper. I never knew where was the end line. I was like, I could always do this analysis and I can add this analysis and I can add this analysis. And, and there's a trade-off because by doing that, you actually get to learn more tools, which is useful. But at the same time, you're extending that time of submission. And I had to learn, I think, the hard way to be like, no, I need to learn when a paper stops. And, and for that, I needed other people to tell me when that stops. So what, have you found any tips or tricks, Melissa, when you've been doing this to try to figure out like, when is that, like, a paper's never completed, it's just submitted, right? But, like, when when do you decide to submit it? Um, well, you know, I'm still in grad school, so 
usually when my advisors are like, you need to stop, (laughs) (laughs) um, which, you know, luckily it's helpful to have, you know, people review your work and give you that kind of feedback. And I think that's similar to what Sebastian is talking about is after grad school, you know, instead you send your paper to friends and, you know, Mm -hmm. say, what would you add before you submit this? And some of them might just be like, you need to submit this now. Um, (laughs) Which is great. Which is helpful advice, especially if you're like me and kind of a perfectionist and just want to keep working on things. Yeah. And I think a good point there um, to mention to graduate students that uh, my friend Jonathan Colmer actually shared is that she's noticed that when you're a grad student, you know, your taste for quality of papers is much better than your ability to do them. And so that influences a lot the thought of you don't think the paper is ready because your your ability to censor taste is much better defined. Um, and and for that, you know, the recommendation is that you, if you want to get better at writing papers, you just got to do the papers. Like quantity will lead to quality. Yeah, Sorry. and on, on that thought, I was so surprised my like second or third year in grad school when I went to my first conference about the relative low quality of conference presentations relative to the <laughs> papers that I read in class. Cause you know, you're reading like elite papers with thousands of citations and top yeah. journals. And you're like, this is, I could never do this. And you go to the conference, you're like, oh, the real people that also yeah. know how to solve things. Like, and so that's very comforting in and of itself that like, Oh, maybe I could do this. Right. Cause you're only used to seeing this like final product and seeing that work in progress can be really refreshing and sort of a, uh, Absolutely. Give you self, yeah, self-confidence to move forward. Yeah. So another tip that I had to, and again, this depends on like your taste, was to stack your work. Um, and what I mean by that is I don't find it super helpful when I switch from one task to the other. I like to say I'm going to dedicate, let's say, these two or three days, sometimes even a week on a particular project and push it as much as I can to get to a stopping point and then send it to somebody else that is not on my plate. And I think that's been somewhat helpful. You pre-identify like what a stopping point is or is a stopping point when you like pull some of your hair out? Uh, that's a good question. I, it depends and depends on the projects and some projects I know that once I've done these analysis or finished this section, it's a stopping point And there's some other projects or some other times where I just have to investigate until I reach a stopping point of like, I, there's so many notes that I can go from here or so many branches, then I have to uh, pause and tell and, and either talk to someone if it's some solo author or uh, send it to my co-authors be like, let's have a meeting about this because we can go in several different ways. So, yeah, I, I really like this idea of stacking work. So something like I mentioned this earlier, but like, I just want to really stress like, I was not in a great place like two years into being an assistant professor because I had just had too many projects going on. I felt like I was spinning plates. It was really stressful. I was working all the time, but I felt like I was getting nowhere. I've like heard this phrase, like you're pushing, you know, one inch in a million directions Mm. uh, versus like just completing one thing. And you could take this idea of stacking work like really far. So like after I sort of realized, oh my gosh, I need to like readjust how I'm doing this. What I changed was like, I'm just going to finish these two projects that are like maybe the most important for me getting tenure or the most important because I care about them the most uh, until they're working papers and submitted, I'm like not going to work on the other things. Mm -hmm. So like, and more than just like two or three days, but like in potentially like months or semester level stacking. Um, And that's sort of, I just did that. And I sort of had my projects in priority until I got through most of my list, which took Mm -hmm. like a couple of years. And did did you ever find it like, okay, you were trying to do a lot of work on there, but then you get, 
like if you get tired or bored of that project, did you switch or did you just push through? Yeah, I guess I don't want to be disingenuous to make it seem like I like was like a monk just only working <laughs> on one thing. But like, I just like, I basically like on the board I was talking about, I have like a little arrow where I'm like, this is my priority. So mm. I just like put it on, like, I'm like, these two are my focus. Um, yeah. So yeah, when I would get bored, I'd like do a reverie report or I would like, mm. you know, work on some, one of the other projects. It wasn't like a sole focus, but I just wanted to make sure like my productive, most mm. valuable time first thing in the morning or, yeah. you know, was was spent on a single goal. Yeah. I, I, I also uh, found that my, my times where I'm most focused or pay a lot of attention to the morning. So I reserve like the mornings to work on the products that I need to work on. And then if I'm, by the afternoon, I'm kind of tired, then I can switch to other things that need to get done, but you know, they're not a project. So yeah, yeah, that's really curious. Uh, so like, I, I like to ask people when they do work and how they organize it. It's like, Melissa, like, what have you found uh, has been like your most productive time? How do you manage even even just the job market paper, let's say? Yeah, uh, I agree. I'm definitely the most productive in the morning, um, you know, especially if I can get started really early, which like 7 a.m. is early for me because I'm not a morning person. And then from like 7 to 11, people aren't really emailing very much then. So yeah. There's nothing to distract you. Um, and I can just sit down and I'm motivated, have my coffee and get a lot of work done. And then in the afternoon, I can come back, do some things that maybe don't feel as productive or slower going, like editing or other things that I have to work on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it does sound like to me, like you seem to leave your email open and I do a similar thing, but I've heard lots of people suggest like not doing that. And instead just like checking email during pre-prescribed like two hour blocks or something. So I could, you could take that to the extreme. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, Melissa, do you like, yeah. How, do you have like periods of time when you work where you try to like turn off all distractions or are there still something, things that pop up while you work? Things still pop up while I work. Twitter is a little okay. bit distracting. I should probably yeah. just, you know, put the phone in a different room. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it, you know, especially I think I was better at it when I was working at my office on campus now where it's like a lot of social interaction is coming through the cell phone. Yeah. Uh, it's a little bit, you know, more distracting, but. Have you used the Pomodoro technique or have you heard of this? I've, I've heard of it where it's like what, 20 minutes on, 10 minutes, like five minutes off. Yeah, that helps me get on the vibe. So like what I've learned is that is that I love distractions and little widgets and little texts from everyone. And so I literally like I started, you know, with uh, we put in my phone and do not disturb and all my devices and whatever do not disturb um, unless it's like, you know, urgent people. Um, and then I put a timer for 25 minutes, put my headphones on and be like, okay, I'm going to work for 25 minutes and I will take a break. Um, and it usually ends up happening that like I get in the flow and then I don't want to stop until an hour or if, or if I do want to stop, I stop. And then I force myself to do 25 minutes again. That's, that's definitely helped. I would say. I, I agree for me, my most productive times are when I'm effectively using techniques that are almost exactly like that. And I'm a big fan of this guy, Cal Newport. And he takes this idea basically of time blocking and layers it. I don't actually know if he uses the Pomodoro technique, but he talks about time blocking too. We're like, okay, I'm going to do two or three Pomodoros where my main focus is writing the introduction of this paper. And you like have a goal for like this block of time. And then like in the afternoon, your block of time can be like mess around with email or like do whatever, but like really focusing and pre-prescribing that time uh, on a particular goal, I think can be really useful. Is there an app for this Pomodoro technique that you're using to track it? Or is it just something like you're looking at? There are, 
There are many apps. <laughs> I, I, if you want a recommendation, I want to, I'll recommend Tide, T-I-D-E. Um, and it just has sounds like waves or like I put the coffee shop sound, like people are talking in the background. And then I put like some jazz music or lo-fi music to just kind of like get me in the groove. But I think the name Pomodoro came from, t- it's tomato, right? And it yeah. came from the idea that it's like, there's a, t- a kitchen timer that looks like mm. a tomato. It's like, you just need like the timer on your phone to do this, yeah. right? And I think the apps are just like for people like me and Sebastian that cannot help ourselves. <laughs> yeah, we want something pretty to look at or like feel like we're being productive. Yeah, so I have forest, I think, or something like that. Yeah, I have focus to do, which is the same feature of forest. Or you have like, the more you work on it, the like larger your tree grows or some yeah. nonsense, but I like it. <laughs> Um, we're reaching, we're reaching our, our stopping point, Melissa. What's, what's other questions maybe you have lingered on or thoughts or, or things that you feel like you learned or want to ask more? I really, I like the stacking method, um, where you pick one project that you're going to, you know, get to the next stopping point. Mm -hmm. Um, I think maybe it's still difficult to figure out what that project should be. Uh, yeah. So how do you, when you sit down to make your schedule for the week or the month, how do you pick that project? So I think there's definitely no right answer here, right? Because like, you know, hindsight is, is twenty twenty. The, the theme of the, of the podcast is there's no right answer. Right well, yeah, now. but I think what's upsetting all the time is when you're a grad student, you see all these people who are like, they have yeah. tenure or they're like some fancy professor somewhere and it looks like everything that they did was pre-planned in some really yeah. thoughtful manner. Yeah, that's but that's not the case, right? So like, um, so I definitely started too many things because I didn't know what to prioritize, right? Mm-hmm. And then when yeah. it reached a certain point, I was like, oh my gosh, which one could be scooped? Which one is the closest to being out the door? So for me in that situation, it was like, which one's the closest to being pushed out? Mm-hmm. Like maybe for you, if you're not in a situation where you've like already committed to too many things, it could be like, well, which thing is like the going to mean the most for your career, right? So if it's your job market paper, maybe it's the best done. So like getting that out now could let you try a few more places uh, journal-wise before going up for tenure. But someone else might be in a totally different situation Mm-hmm. I don't know what you think, Sebastian. Yeah, I mean, I think it's that again. It is hard. Um, hopefully, you learn it as you go, so eventually you'll find an answer for that for yourself. But, but I think for people who are starting that process, I would just go back to circling back on uh, putting yourself fake deadline, fake fake deadlines, and you pick. You know, if if you have no deadlines for, let's say, you have a deadline for job market paper, let's say, but you don't have a deadline for the three other projects, then then try to create those fake deadlines. Um, and hopefully they're like far away from each other. Like don't put like, you know, one of them a, a week from each other, but try to, whether that's submission to a conference or whether that's your own internal deadline with your team or whether you send, send it to a professor that maybe you have a good report and saying like, I want to submit this draft to you by this time. Could you give me comments by two weeks later? Like anything that could inf- help you enforce some of that, that, that helps you give structure, which then informs your decisions on like, what should you optimize? Because based on that constraint, you optimize. Yeah. And I just want to add a random tidbit here. I find that a lot of people recommend this and it probably works for lots of people, but it doesn't work for me. And I, I think for students, students I've worked with, it doesn't work as well for them. They try to use conferences as deadlines to create knowledge. So they'll submit an abstract for work they've yet to do, or they hope to do in the future for an upcoming con- conference is like, oh, this will incentivize me to work on this. And that's true. But then you're maybe not putting your best foot forward to get feedback at that conference. Mm-hmm. And there are some conferences I think where it's fine to present like incomplete work or things that are just, Hey, I tried this thing. What advice do you have? 
But if you're a new student, you should definitely be thinking of conferences as a way to advertise yourself and work. So I would hesitate to use those as your deadlines for like really early stage work, unless it's a conference designed for that. But that's great advice. Yeah. I, and I, I, I think, well, still now, I only submit to conference once like I know I have something that I would be able to present because uh, I because I was always on the other situation where somebody wanted to submit really early. It's like, we will have a paper by then. I'm like, yeah, but we don't have it right now. And it would have been not great because the paper didn't end up going anywhere. So yeah, that's, that's great to mention that. I think that's another way of like stacking your works. Like future you always thinks you're going to have more time in like three months. <laughs> three months is the magic time horizon where you will have nothing else to do with this commitment. And like a conference is a year away. So like, of course you'll be able to do this. And like, you won't, it won't be ready. So it's much, it, it's like, it eases your stress a lot. I think if you're submitting something that's like already a working paper. Mm-hmm. One thing maybe to wrap up to when, when I'm thinking now back to the question of how many projects, you know, I think it's always good to start small and then slowly add them as opposed to just have this influx of a bunch of projects. Um, and I, I want to say that maybe that's an advice that not, that other people would disagree on because uh, maybe other people are like, try as much as you can and just work so much. And then, you know, so I don't know if that's the best advice, but I, I feel like that worked for me at least. Yeah. Yeah. And something I've like joked around about with some of my friends has been like to Marie Kondo, your research. It's like, <laughs> yeah. for those of you that don't know Marie Kondo, she's like an advocate of like throwing away everything that you don't love. <laughs> but does it make you happy? Yeah. Yeah. So like, if you've done something and you've started working on it, maybe start lots of things, but then have like a threshold where you're like, ah, you know, this isn't working out for me. The data was really hard to get. Um, you know, yeah. don't be afraid to prune in these weekly meetings or try semester meetings as Robert Talbot mm-hmm. recommends, right? Um, awesome. So that seems like a great place to pause and transition to uh, something we've added here, uh, which is our tip of the week. So uh, if Melissa, you'd like to start us off with your recommendation or tip of the week. Yeah. So my recommendation of the week is to talk with people outside of economics about your research, especially sure. people. <laughs> I know it can be a little scary. Uh, especially people whose jobs are related to what you're studying. For example, I've talked with someone who worked at the CDC in the 80s on the AIDS epidemic, and I've talked with people who work with domestic violence survivors. And one of my most important resources is my friend who is a nurse practitioner and gives me the opportunity to ask questions like, hey, what would you do if a patient came in and told you this? And Mm. these conversations have really guided my research. So that's my recommendation. Are you are, are you going to write like a NP scope of practice paper, Melissa? Uh, now that I you have that's thought one. about it because I, I talk to her a lot and I, it always gives me lots of ideas. Yeah, that's great. I think I think that's great advice. And um, we had a guest a couple of weeks ago, Kelly, to that asked us a little bit about that of like how do you meet people outside of econ, um, which is I think super important, especially when you're doing a lot of cross field stuff. Yeah, you'd think that econ harmony by the AA would be about that, but that's not what it is. Econ Harmony? What's that? Isn't that the name of the AEA, ASSA uh, session creation thing? Oh, I don't, don't think you I've can submit like this. single papers, then they'll like try to create sessions. What? Oh, I don't think I knew about well, We need to verify Harmony. this to make sure I'm not like saying something crazy. Okay. Yeah. Alex, you're going to be in trouble. Um, so I'll go with my recommendation of the week. Uh, this, is, this is something that I do do. I do do. Is that English? I uh, hope so. It, it is. It's English for many different things, though. <laughs> and uh, uh, but Chloe, Chloe, he's mentioned it on Twitter this week, and I thought it's, it would be nice to mention it here, which is have a nice 
email folder. And what that means is that if you ever get a nice email about your research or a lecture or a class or anything, print it to PDF, save it in a folder and, and start accumulating those because not only they're going to be awesome for your mental health, but also maybe for your review cases, wherever you hit some review, whether that's um, in academia or not academia. Yeah, and save those uh, on a in a digital form if you receive them in hard copy. So I just <laughs> submitted my tenure and promotion materials and my hard copy were all in a manila folder in my office, <laughs> which I didn't have access to. <laughs> yeah, definitely take a scan them. Um, yeah. Alex, what's your recommendation for the week? So mine is a bit on theme with this stuff. So I find that I am like super distractible. Like I can, you know, go on Twitter and, mm-hmm. you know, check oh, random no. websites and I'm a Mac user and someone made this open source software called uh, self-control and I just download it and it blocks websites that I put on there. So I block like ESPN, mm-hmm. a couple football websites, Twitter, things like that. And you can block it for like block it for the next four hours or five hours. Mm-hmm. And if you restart your computer or shut the thing, it, I don't know what they do, but you can't get back to the websites. Oh, so you actually, like, it's very, but what if any emergency I need to get, I guess you go from your Well, don't put, like, some website you need in an emergency on there, I guess. <laughs> like, I don't need Twitter on my computer. I guess I could, like, use my you phone really or something. You really need to tell your opinion sometimes, you know. Yeah, I got to yeah. share this with the world, right? So so I feel like that that, I've used that all the time particularly in pre-COVID when I would go to a coffee shop, I'd walk to this coffee shop by my house. Like today I'm going to do this. And I would turn on rescue time to make sure I'm not like wasting this now, like pre-prescribed time. Mm-hmm. Also I'm vindicated. Econ harmony is a thing. It's okay. a session organizer. <laughs> All right. Well now we, you have basically two tips of the week. Um, great. Well, thank you, Melissa, for being with us. Uh, you talked before about where people can find you, but can you remind us one more time? Yeah, so you can check out my website, melissakspencer.com, and also find me on Twitter. Awesome. Well, thank you, everyone, for tuning in this week to our podcast. Please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcast, and we'll see you next week. Bye, everyone. So you have, you have to teach us. All right, so anyone can learn, like, basic beatboxing <laughs> in, like, a minute, right? Okay. So we're going to start with this very simple phrase in English. We're going to say boots and cats. Boots and cats. Boots and cats. Good, good. Okay. Boots and cats. And now you're going to say boots and cats, but you're going to try to say it without actually pronouncing any of the vowels and just the consonant. So it's like. Hey, yeah, that's pretty good. So yeah, then you just kind of put some more air behind it, like add a rhythm, like throw in some other words. And it's like. I love this. Okay, wait. That's not ready for the public yet. I've I've got some rhyming issues. It's hard to it's hard to rhyme gonorrhea with other things. So no, there's so many different things you could rhyme gonorrhea with. Well, you know, it has to get my job market pitch across. I'd love to present this at IHEA, but my paper's about gonorrhea. Good. I might use that's that what's going to go into the book. yeah that, that's going to make that's going to make the final version for sure <laughs> uh, that's awesome all right that's great i like that that was fun